Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. I'm Richard Walensky. This is KPFA's Bay Area Theater podcast, featuring stage reviews, along with extended versions of interviews heard on Arts Waves on Cover to Cover. Eric Ting, how does the play open? Brandon Jacobs Jenkins' Gloria opens in uh, the offices of a cultural department of a major New York City magazine. At the top of the play, there's a young intern making uh, copies at a copier. One of the assistant editors is also there at the office on time. No one else is there yet. Uh, What starts to unfold is essentially a day in the life of this office. Gloria first arrived in 2015, and it was um, a finalist, I think, for the Pulitzer. I understand the playwright was here, and usually when a play has been kind of written in stone, the playwright doesn't show up. So why did he come? What was going on? Brandon is an old friend. There's only a couple of us that have directed more than a couple of his plays, and so Nataki Garrett and I are in a race to see who can direct the most of Brandon's work. He came out as a favorite to me. He's always very interested to see sort of productions of his plays that I direct, and it's uh, it's a great gift and a blessing. So he came out actually for the last couple previews over the weekend, and then he joined us for opening. Did he give you notes? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, his plays are, without question, incredibly challenging works. Uh, what's interesting about Gloria is that Gloria is sort of on its surface, it doesn't feel as challenging as some of his other known works, such as the Octoroon. What is true when you go into working on a play by Brandon is that you're aware that there's the story that's happening on the surface, and then there's probably two or three layers of additional sort of stories unfolding underneath that. And those stories are are as much observations of the world that we live in. They are um, sort of Brandon's own kind of personal histories kind of weaving in unexpected ways into the piece. So it's almost inevitable that you miss something. So it's really great to have the playwright come in and tell you what you missed. Would that be, for instance, material in the first act, which we'll get into in a second, uh-huh. that will only surface more clearly in act two? Yeah, often. We're having a spoiler-free conversation. Is that correct? Yeah. Great. So, you know, I think it's safe that we can talk about a little bit about sort of what happens between the two acts in the sense that, you know, actors return in the second act as different characters, for instance, right? And so what happens in the, the so an example of a note that Brandon gave me is, is just an observation about the play and how the play operates, uh, which helped us really kind of um, lean into a choice. Um, the second act takes place in a, in a coffee shop. And uh, there's a moment when two characters who are there from the first act, right, are, they, they sort of kick off the act, the second act. And then there's a moment when new characters enter into the space and there's an encounter between one of the old characters and these two new characters. And Brandon was like, oh, you know, this is really an interesting observation about this play because this is the moment when the, the two acts really kind of uh, confront each other where you get this friction of like the realism of the first act bouncing up against the kind of very much more theatrically artificial second act in the sense that you're now aware that there are actors up there playing different roles and, and the world shifts a little bit. Um, it's more theatrical. It's, there's sort of like a more theatrical vocabulary in the second act. 
And he would say something like that. And you'd be like, you'd sit there and be like, oh yeah, of course, that's exactly right. And like, and what does that mean in, in the play? And he's like, well, it's just, it's a moment when you really play the comedy, uh, which is fantastic, right? Because you spend, we spent a lot of the first act saying, let's not play the comedy. Let's play against the comedy. It's going to be funny no matter what. But there's a moment in the second act when the comedy just starts to release itself and people start opening up to the audience and delivering laugh lines. It's, it's cool. Well, you, you just came up with something that I was going to ask you about, which is that the first act is primarily a comedy. Yes. And by being a comedy and by being having funny lines, that means that you are going to go serious in your direction because the lines will take care of themselves. It's something that I believe very, very truly. You know, there's there's lots of things that you do to support the comedy that's in the text, but you don't have to play for laughs in the same way that um, you might in other situations, I think. You know, Brandon's work, um, Brandon's plays often are responses to different genres of theater. So with an octoroon, he was um, sort of wrestling with the melodramatic, the melodrama form. With appropriate, he's wrestling with the sort of classic American dysfunctional family drama. Uh, with Gloria, he's wrestling with the sort of situational comedy, office setting, you know, an office, an office comedy. Um, and that's the perception of it. Like, that's what he asks you to sort of like come into it thinking that it's going to be. And then in the classic Brandon way, he subverts that uh, very intentionally. And in this case, very suddenly. And in some cases, unexpectedly. Unexpectedly would be, would be the, would be the word. <laughs> There's a monologue which happens, well, continual monologues by one of the characters. She talks really fast. Yes. So the question there is, how do you maintain the speed, and also the coherence. Was that an issue? I mean, it's always a challenge. You're lucky when you have a really great company of actors um, who can pull it off. The speed at which some of these characters speak, it's about the speed of thought, right? Like, I think one of the, the three central characters in the first act of the play are assistant editors at a sort of... A, a, the New Yorker. At, yeah, exactly. <laughs> at a well-known New York magazine, right? And, you know, and they're the sort of, they're the sort of young minds that you know, they're ambitious and they have an expectation that they're going to sort of very quickly move on to better things. And they spend a lot of their time sort of exercising their minds, right? And and that manifests itself in a kind of critique of the world, whether it be of each other or of culture or of the conditions of, you know, time and, and, and society. And uh, and the speed at which they speak is is a testament to the speed at which they think. And that's kind of, I think, built into the text in a really exciting way. And Brandon does things that help us as an audience. You know, he, he writes these speeches in a way that supports story, right? They, there's repetitions of thoughts. He'll repeat information that he really thinks you need to know as an audience so that even if you miss it the first time, you hear it the second time. And it's strangely a lot like Shakespeare, right? Like, I think Shakespeare is also meant to be spoken pretty pretty swiftly. And Shakespeare does a thing where he will... He will say the same thing three times and the first time will be very simple and the third time will be incredibly poetic and the middle is some you know the second time is somewhere in between the two and that's just to ensure that as an audience you are following the information you're capturing the necessary sort of exposition that's in there and i think in the same way brandon as like many great writers they're aware of that and they're they're they make sure to care for the audience so even if you miss certain sections of text the jokes always land because all the information that you need to laugh is there. 
I was talking to a playwright last year. Uh, she made the comment, kind of took me aback, that audiences only catch maybe 80% of the dialogue. Yeah, I think that's true. I think that's true. It's a difference in a way between writing for the theater and writing for film and television. You know, like what you find is writing writing for the theater tends to be much more loquacious. Like you'll you'll find that people do engage in much longer monologues and the dialogues tend to be more expansive, right? And I think that's partly because it's a live experience and in the way that all live experiences work, the brain is only able to um, to comprehend or process so much information at a time. And so one of the interesting challenges, like if you go back and you look at older plays, what you'll find is that, you know, these, these older plays are, are written to be spoken in a much more deliberate way. And they're longer. They tend to be much longer. They tend to be sort of much more sort of uh, loquacious in their dialogue. Uh, whereas contemporary writing tends to capture more of the affectations of contemporary dialogue, you know. And so lots of ums and uhs and these and that's and pivots and unexpected turns. And because of that, you know, writers who excel particularly at that kind of writing, they understand exactly what you just said, which is that an audience will only capture so much of that information. So if you know that um, the audience is only hearing eight out of every 10 words and you've got 10 words you need to make sure everybody hears and you, you add two or three more words to make sure they get the information that they need. Does working on Shakespeare or Cal Shakes, how does that influence working well, obviously, whether you're directing or not, as the artistic director, you're always there anyway. How does that affect you in terms of working on a play like Laurie? Oh, my gosh. I mean, it's funny because I started in new plays. Like, a lot of my earlier background as a director was in new works, you know, working with and, and advocating for writers such as Brandon. And I think that's largely in part because, you know, there's often this conversation around an opportunity deficit in the American theater in certain places. And sort of like, I was never given the opportunity to write classic work as a young director, as an emerging director. So coming to Shakespeare, I talk a lot about how I treat these old plays as new works, it's sort of like I'm, I'm, I'm engaging with them as if I'm encountering them for the very first time, which is fantastic because it allows you to sort of discover the thing which is not about discovering Shakespeare, but about discovering sort of what he is doing with his text and what he is saying with his text. So in that sense, theater is fundamentally, you know, it's, it's really amazing actually to, to find the kind of connections between, you know, works from Shakespeare's canon and new plays like Brandon's. And even in just the sense that of the way that writers repeat information in the structures of their plays and the kind of dynamic, dramatic, propellant that they inject into their work. Drama has not changed all that much through the centuries. The, the length of a play and the length of time that an audience is willing to sit and listen to a play hasn't changed all that much over the years. You're listening to an interview with Eric Ting, director of Gloria, a play by Brandon Jacobs Jenkins, which runs at ACT's Strand Theater through April 5th. For more information, you can go to act-sf.org. I'm Richard Walensky on arts waves during the previews were you sitting there and taking notes on how the audience was reacting to the last particularly in some of the uh, more fraught scenes in act two? Oh yeah absolutely absolutely there's an old saying that you want to bank your laughs so there are occasions when you know as, a, as an actor you're exploring a bit of text and you'll get a laugh in the middle of a speech and then you'll get a laugh a couple sentences later and then you'll get a laugh maybe at the end of the speech and sometimes what I'll say to, to actors is like, I really think the laugh that you want is the laugh at the end of the speech. So drive through those first few lines so that you're not catching the laughs there 
so that you're actually building the joke so that when it when the punchline lands, you're going to get the biggest laugh there. That's a thing that you can only really, really come to know when you're in front of an audience. One of the great gifts of ACT's Strand Theater is that they actually run previews for two weeks, mm-hmm. which is a, a quite a bit of a luxury when it comes to having audiences for a show. The opening act and the final scene of the second act both take place in offices. Yeah. Were you trying to create some kind of parallel environment? Uh Absolutely. There's an event at the center of Gloria that really acts as a kind of delineation between the before and after. Right. And I think that in that sense, we were really struck by this notion of the play kind of moving through a looking glass after the events of the first act. So when you see the play, you'll notice that the architecture, the sort of architectural ground plan of the office space in Act 1 basically flips in Act 2. So it is a reflection of itself. The office is very different. It takes place in a completely different part of the country and in a way a very different industry. But we were very much interested in the echoes of the first act appearing in the second act. Brandon talks a lot about this notion of ghosts and the second act being haunted by the first act. And so uh, we looked at a lot of different ways that that happened. I don't, I don't know if you noticed it, but there's one moment. It's great. There's one moment when Devin, who's one of the characters in the second act, is standing and getting coffee. And it's one of those sort of like press yeah. thermoses. And it connects with Dean's last moment in the first act. You've been listening to an interview with Eric Ting, director of Gloria by Brandon Jacobs Jenkins, which runs at ACT Strand Theater through April 5th. For more information, you can go to act-sf.org.